0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. And the goal was to cast vision for what we were hoping to do and see in this city. And let me be honest with you. um, There's a lot of things before you start this process that you just don't know and you're not aware of and you've got a big picture. Even if you're a visionary leader, you have a picture, but a lot of those things change over time. And so, over the course of those three days, we made our way up to Griffith Observatory. And I remember um, walking up there for the first time. I'd only been in LA three days in my life before this process started, three days before I moved. I mean, before we came out with 25 pastors. And it was the first time I had overlooked the city from Griffith. And I remember standing at the front of the observatory and looking out over a city of 19 million people. By the way, you know that one in every 17 people in America live in Los Angeles. Um, There are more people in LA than there are in 43 states in America. LA has a greater economy than 40 states in America. There are 217 neighborhoods here. There's one church for every 23,000 people, 19 million people. And I want to tell you what my response was when I stood up and overlooked the city. And by the way, you can't see it all from Griffith because you have the valley behind you and there's so many areas. But let me tell you my response. It was emotional. And um, it was was to the point of, 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 tears. And I sit up there with my wife and I, I literally said to God, God, where, where do you even start in a place like this? Where do you even start to begin a new work in a place like this? And so what we found over the last 19 months of being here, if you're new, we just launched this church in February and God has been good to us. Um, and it's his work that we're a part of, but what we found is that the, the, the overwhelming population is compounded by a cultural issue of seclusion. Seclusion is not um, unique to Los Angeles. It happens in every city in America. I just want to say to you, I've lived in a lot of places, and the issue of seclusion in our city is as great as any city in America, I can promise you. I thought I was coming to LA, a city with beautiful weather. Um, most of the season um, it 's really hot right now but 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 I thought I was coming to a city where there was continuously beautiful weather, endless summer. I thought neighbors would know each other. I thought we would barbecue together. I thought you would keep my kids and I would keep your kids. And what I found when I moved here was that we build walls in the backyard and we build high plants in the backyard so that we can't see over the fence and know our neighbors. Can I say to you, there's a part of me that likes a little bit of privacy. Um, There's a part of me that likes to be able to retreat to my home. There's a part of me that likes to be able to wear, wear whatever I want to in my house and nobody be able to have a concern about it. Um, but can I also say that the, 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 what we found when we moved here was that it was different than what we thought. And I've told this story multiple times, and I hope you're going to meet some of my neighbors over the next few weeks and the coming months. Um, but, but I love to tell this story. I tell it to every mission team that comes in town. The first week we were here, I walked across the street and met one of my neighbors. And we were having small talk and I said, hey, I called him by name because he just introduced himself. And I said, hey, I've not met the guy that lives right next to you. We now know them, the couple that lives there by name. That couple has lived there for 40 years. The guy that I'd met had lived on the street at the time, 12 years. I said, hey, I've not met the guy that lives next to you. Um, what's his name? <laughs> and he looked at me with a confused look and, and, and he said, I don't know. I don't know. And it struck me that um, in that moment, there was a man and a woman who had lived on the street for 12 years next to a man and a woman who had lived in the same house for 40 years. They'd lived next door to each other for 12 years. I describe it as a first down away from each other's bedrooms, and they didn't even know their name. And so what's happened is this culture of seclusion, all of us like our privacy, but the culture of seclusion has cost us significantly, not just in LA, but across the country. And I'd love to, walk through how we've gone from from the mid-century in the 1900s all the way up till now and how technology has changed and where we used to get our information and how we used to share the city square. And now we can absorb all of that information in the privacy of our homes. And so it's drawn us inward and away from each other. But I'll just say this. In 2009, there's a town about five hours from here. There was a girl named J.C. Duggan who was abducted from South Lake Tahoe and in 2009, um, the police found her. She was abducted as an 11-year-old. And her abductor kept her in his backyard in tents and in sheds for nine. Night- Teen years. The news came out that when they found this girl, she was now uh, 40 years old. She had had two men by the guy who had abducted her. Both of her teenage children lived in the backyard in tents and sheds with her. And for 19 years, nobody knew she was there. And the neighbors were interviewed on TV and they made the statement that it was none of their business why the man had tents and sheds there. And the thought is that in all those years, no one had ever troubled themselves to have the kind of social interaction that could end a tragedy like that. So in 2014, as we we're beginning to visionate this, this what God's doing here in our city and asking God for a vision for our city, I began to write down some core values for our church. This is the long introduction to the entire series, but just bear with me. So I began to write down some of our core values for what we were gonna be as a church. And the core values basically communicate this. If you could open up our heart and our heart could speak, this is what's important to us. And one of the core values that we wrote is worded like, this. If you go on our website, you can see it at some point in the Colony Theater. We will visually display those core values. But one of those core values is worded like this. We own the neighborhood. I had a church planner that I met with before I ever moved out here. And I was walking through some of those with him. He was in LA and I was walking through all of them with him. And he said, I don't really like that statement. It sounds a little bit colonial, like you're trying to take over. And I said, I receive that. That's not the heartbeat of who we are, but we desire to make an investment in our city. By the way, I found out this week that that guy is no longer in our city as a church planner. He's given up and he's gone. And so this is how we word this, this, Uh, This is how we describe this core value. This is literally what you can find on our website. Wherever a believer lives, there should be a tangible, visible Jesus presence. We serve the communities that sustain us. We will own the neighborhood through creative, daily, and strategic intentionality in everyday life. And here's where we get that from. Here's where we get this core value. Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisee, an expert in the law, and the expert in the law says to Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says to the expert in the law, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And the second is like it. He says, love your who? Neighbor, Neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus makes a statement. And all the laws, all the, he's speaking of the old, t- all the laws, Hinge on these two things. So I just want to say to you up front, wired into the DNA of who we are as a church is this value to be good neighbors who make a difference where we live do me a favor, do me a favor. I am not asking you to learn four spiritual laws. I'm not asking you to learn a gospel presentation over the course of this series. It is much more simpler. I am going in a very simple direction over the course of these three weeks. So please bear with me and please don't tune me out because I promise you there is value for you. I wanna say to you, I have experienced it myself over the last 19 months. Our family has, there is great value you and being a good neighbor. And Jesus has given us a plan. It's simple and it's strategic if we would just lean in and engage in the process. So what I want to do is I want to turn you to Luke chapter 10. Starting in verse 25, this is a familiar passage. Can I, you just look at me real quick. It's a familiar, it's the Good Samaritan passage. Before you're like, I've heard it before. Can I say to you, how do we get so inoculated to familiar passages, right? We get the first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart. We get there right. like we gotta love God. But then the second part gets a little fuzzy. It gets a little furry and it gets a little chaotic. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, th- this whole idea of loving your neighbor, it's, it's, it, it's not just exclusive to the church but the church bore bore this idea. And so that's why we hear it everywhere. That's why we can see it on a bumper sticker. That's why we can hear it on TV. That's why we can see this idea expressed. And the reason we hear these things over and over and over again is because they are really, really good, all right? It's really, really good. So can I ask you a couple questions before we jump into this? Thank you (laughs) for your permission. Should Christians be good neighbors? You didn't have to answer it, but thank you. What happens, you don't have to answer this, when, when we're better neighbors? What happens when we're better neighbors? What if it was possible for us, and, and bear with me, what if it was possible for us to be a good church? Bear with me. Um, this is just broad, and I'm trying to emphasize the point. What if it was good for us to be a good church and yet be bad Christians? <laughs> I'm not casting anything on you today. But I want to say that your church has a good name in the city. If you're a part of Story City, we have a good name in our city. We were passing out backpacks on Friday night. We've got another 150 backpacks to give out. Can I tell you what Tyler and I heard over and over on Friday night? Thank you for what you guys do for our community. Some of you are here because of what we do for our community. That's all a part of this process in launching a church, not just to have a good name in our city, but to build a bridge to the gospel and the ongoing ministry of a gospel church in our city. Your church has a good name in our city. Can I say this to you? Sometimes, though, we feel like we're guilty by association. My church has a good name. I go to that church. I identify with that church. So that should be accounted to me. But Jesus says all of us have a personal responsibility to engage in what the church is doing corporately and is responsible for So how does the church act individually in the way that we think the church is corporately responsible for? I want to help us do that today. I want to help us to do it over the course of three weeks. This is very, very vital in the life of our church, because here's the deal. What we do on Sunday mornings is not the end goal. I'm so stoked about the Colony Theater. It's going to be an amazing opportunity, but what matters is not not just this gathering, but what happens during the week, and then this culminates in a celebration of all that God is doing. We are not just a body gathered on Sunday morning. We are bodies scattered throughout our, church, throughout our city throughout the week. So the power and the genius of the greatest commandment that Jesus says, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, is simple and it's profound when we act on it. So I would like to propose to us today that the smartest thing we can do collectively to impact our city is to actually live out Jesus's commands to our neighbors. I mean literally this morning to our neighbors. I want to get into that in just a minute. But can I just pose two questions to you? And there's grace in this moment. You're like, I make an F. I'm making an F on this test. That's okay. All of us are making an F on this test at some point in life. I want to say to you, 95% of the people that you live around are making an F on this test. But God is good and his grace is sweet. And he's going to lead us to a different place. So here are the two questions. Will we take the great commandment? literally and seriously will we take the great commandment literally and seriously and here's the here's the here's the, the the thought that will usher us into it imagine what would happen if we did imagine what would happen if we did. I I know most of you in this room, and I'm not expecting 150 out of 150 will take this and run with it. By the way, um, research tells us that if 17 out of 100 people will grasp what it is that you are trying to do, then it can overwhelm an organization. So some of you are going to walk out of here and you're going to take this, who is my neighbor card, and we'll never see it again, even though we're going to bring it back up over the next two weeks. But if 17 of you will take it, I promise you God's going to do something in the life of our church. So it's really easy to see this idea of our neighbor. um, But the real power is when we begin to act on it and actually do it. And we actually walk out of our front door and we live out and love our neighbors where we live. So if you have a Bible, turn it on, turn it to, that was a long introduction to where we are going over the course of three weeks. Let me help you. This is not as complicated as you think it is. I promise you, you think I'm going to tell you at the end of this message, you need to go share the gospel and Jesus with your neighbors. I'm not telling you to do that so you can relax. All right. Luke chapter 10, you're like, really? You're a church. You should ask. No, if, you, if that's where it goes, that's where we hope it goes. But I'm not telling you that today. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Let's read together. This is a great passage, the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan, good Samaritan, good, not great. <laughs> verse 25. <laughs> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now, just pause here for a moment. I love this introduction to where we are going. Uh, This is a brilliant man who is testing the most brilliant man, by the way. This is a scholar. He is a lawyer, and he understands the Old Testament law. By the way, the Old Testament law consists of 613 Laws that we have. The New Testament has over a thousand commands that we're giving. The Old Testament has 613. And so this teacher of the law, the Old Testament, who's brilliant, asked the most brilliant man, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is what Jesus says: what is written in the law? (laughs) How do you read it? Is what Jesus says to the expert in the law. Now just pause for a moment, all right. If you're an expert in the law and you understand the Torah, you understand the 613 commands, basically what Jesus is saying is how do you sum up over 600 things that God has given to us? That's a really tough question, by the way. It requires an ability to assimilate information and to be strategic and simple in your response. So Jesus says, you know the laws, you're an expert in it. So if you'll take the 600 laws and you will tell me what those laws mean in their simple form, then I can help you understand how to inherit eternal life. Well, the expert says, this is brilliant, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might. And then the lawyer says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is what Jesus says. Verse 28, you've answered correctly. (laughs) You've, well done. High five. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. And then he makes a statement that's very, very profound. And it's still profound today. Do this and you will what? Live. Profound. Verse 29, but then the conversation turns. <laughs> and, and this sounds a lot like most of us, myself included, on many, many days. The lawyer says back to Jesus, but he wanted to justify himself. <laughs> (laughs) The perspective of the scriptures not just tells us what is being said, it allows us to get a glimpse into the heart of the people who are saying it. That is the wisdom of God as he writes the scriptures, and we know what this man was thinking. And what the scripture says is that he wanted to justify himself in the next statement he's about to make. Can I pause just for a moment and say to us, we're in the series called The Art of Neighboring, and I can already see, I'm not going to point you out, but some of y'all have your head turned sideways or your head looking down, and this is totally not interesting to you, but I want to say to you, um, many of us, myself included, for most of my life have responded the same way. How can I find a loophole into the second greatest commandment that God has given me? (laughs) How can I justify... What I'm doing outside of my neighborhood. By the way, I've been a pastor now for 16 years. How can I justify all the good I'm doing? I was a youth pastor for 14 years. I was out three nights a week with football teams and Bible studies and in the community. I was doing a lot of good things. And I would find a way to justify why I wasn't making a significant investment in the, the place where I live. And so was this guy. He wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor. <laughs> that sounds familiar to most of us this morning, and I want to say when we think of this idea of neighboring well, we have a couple faults. Number one, it's probably just not a value for most of us, and for, 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 for all of us, culture has, has moved in a direction that has taught us this. For, for some of us, time is an issue, and, and, and it's just not a value. And then for some of us, there's just a fear to it. We want to address all of those over three weeks. But Jesus goes on to tell this expert in the law a parable. And I think the parable is good. I'm not going to read it line by line with you. But let me just narrate what happens. Jesus says, let me illustrate who your neighbor is. There's a man who's on a journey. He's on a road. He gets beat up. He gets stripped of everything he owns. And he's laid, Jesus says, uh, half dead. I think that's a funny statement. He's half dead. And so Jesus says, there's a priest that walks down the road and he sees the man who's been robbed. He's laying on the side of the road and the priest decides to walk the opposite side of the road and to pass the man who's in need. Then he says, there's a Levite that walks by. Um, There's a Levite that walks by. He sees the man who's been robbed, stripped and half dead. He chooses the other side of the road and he walks past the man who is in need and who is near. And then he says, there's a Samaritan man. And I don't unpack this whole thing this morning, but there was a Samaritan man who would be the least likely suspect to engage and encourage a man where there is need and who is near. And Jesus says, the Samaritan looks at the man. He picks him up. He puts him on his donkey and he places him. He takes him to a hotel. He pays his bill and he tells the man who owns the hotel, I've given you enough money to allow him to stay as long as he needs. And if he needs to stay longer, let me know. I'll come back and pay the bill even more. And so Jesus asked the expert in the law, "Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers?" And the expert in the law replied, "Well, he says the one who had mercy on him." Jesus told him, and this is so good for us. By the way, that's a picture of what Jesus has done for us in that scenario. But this is also instructive for us because Jesus says this to the expert in the law: "The one who had mercy on him." The expert in the law said, and Jesus said, "Then go and do likewise. Then go and do." Likewise. So I, I've, I know that you're familiar with this passage. And if, you're, if your um, experience with this passage is like mine, if you've been in church for a while, I, my pastor preached on it several years ago and I remember sitting in the in the chair and I remember thinking to myself because he's telling the story of all these people that he helps and 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 I remember thinking to myself that seems that seems impossible like like if the barista that I go to my coffee shop if she's my neighbor if the guy on the freeway who breaks down is my neighbor if the person on Facebook who's asking for help for an issue is my neighbor if all of these people are my neighbors then this seems like an impossible Possible task and it seems like nothing ever gets done. So I just want to say to you, if you have a perspective, like the people that I work with, the people that I go to the gym with, the people on my team, the people in my school, if your perspective is the people outside of your location where you live, if that's your perspective. Can I say to you this morning, you're absolutely correct you're absolutely correct. Those people are your neighbors. Those are people we should be investing into. But can I also say to you, can I also say, by the way, I received a call this week from the Colony Theater, the people who work there, and she was in tears. I think it was Thursday morning, and she's crying. She couldn't even get through the conversation. She handed the phone to somebody else who worked there, and then she got the phone back, and she said, Matt, I've just met two teenagers, a brother and sister, 15 and 16 years old, and they were trying to sell me their puppies. They're homeless. Their mom died of cancer, and they're just trying to get a bus ticket. Can you help me? Can I say to you, if your perspective of neighboring is external to where you live, I want to affirm your thought and belief this morning. What Brenda was doing to teenagers who she passed on the way to work was neighboring. But can I say to you, that does not exclude, it does not leave out um, the people who live right around you. Even though we love this generic idea of a metaphoric neighbor and a metaphoric love, can I say to you this morning, without intentionality, nothing really ever gets done. That may not be true for you. I know there's a couple in our church this morning that has a ministry. I know multiple stories in this room who reach out to people and they do a phenomenal job of neighboring. They help people move in to places. They help people who are currently in a situation without a home. And, and some of you do amazing, an amazing job. I want to confess to you as your pastor this morning that for most of my life, this was not my experience. I thought everybody outside of my world where I lived was my neighbor. I would do an excellent job there, but I did a terrible job with the guy who lived across the street, the older couple who lived next to me in Atlanta. And God began to make a shift in my heart and my mind in my practice. And I began to realize is that all of that neighboring external to where I lived doesn't make the person right across the street any less of my neighbor. They're no less in need and in nearness of me and where God has placed me. And I would like to say also this morning, I know if you're like me, most of us live in relationships because of an affinity that you have with somebody else. If I were honest with you, I would say there are a certain type of people that I like to spend most of my time with. They like sports, (laughs) Um, they're typically educated, and they are typically self-aware, and we enjoy being around each other, and most of us have affinity-based relationships, but But when we start basing relationships on proximity, I believe really good things began to happen. Um, Some neighbors aren't going to like you. (laughs) Some neighbors uh, aren't people that you would naturally hang with some of your neighbors are naturally extraordinarily busy. The two houses that are catty corner to me in my neighborhood, I've probably seen them a max of five times in 19 months. It makes it really difficult to get to know them. But I really believe that it will change your neighborhood. And can I say this? It mostly changes me. Um, This is not just an evangelistic strategy, Tyler. This is not just a strategy to reach people in our city. For me, it's been a discipleship strategy. It's been a discipleship strategy to draw me into the heart of God and where God is stretching me as a person. Because as I get to know the people around me, most of those people are not people that I had an affinity with. Those are people who have needs. Those are people who God is stretching me in conversation. Those are people who are stretching me in time. Those are people who are stretching me in their need. And it's a discipleship tool in my life that God uses to bring me closer to the heart of God. And look at me, when we start basing relationships, on proximity, it will begin to change your heart too. So how do we become great neighbors? How do we, by the way, the passage tells us when we begin to ask this question, who's my neighbor? It's obvious in this passage, anybody who's near and anybody who has a need is a neighbor. And we don't want to diminish those things. Katie has a great ministry to people that don't live in her neighborhood, but they're all around our city. And when they have a need, she goes out and she finds furniture and she places him in a home. She does a, an incredible job of neighboring to people. You guys do. I was back there in the green room this morning prepping for this message, thinking you guys do an amazing job of neighboring. But how do we become neighboring? How do we become good neighbors to the people who live in proximity to us? Your neighbor is basically one of three things. They're either a stranger, which is most of us in this room. And I would like to say to you that this is not just an exclusive experience to Christians. I would dare say, I would dare say that Christians have the exact same experience as non-Christians in our city. Um, I don't think that's a good thing. I don't think that's a great reflection on the church. I don't think it's a great reflection on Jesus. It just is what it is. I think we neighbor as well as non-Christians do as well. And so this is generally the process. And this is where we are heading over three weeks. People are typically either strangers. You don't know their name. You call them, hey, buckaroo. (laughs) Hey, pal, man. And then stranger becomes an acquaintance. You've heard their name before. You probably don't know it. And then acquaintance becomes a relationship or a friend. So, how do we move from hey, Buckaroo, to hey, Bob? Hey, Tony, Lucy. Hey, Sonia and Barry. Hey, Jeffrey. Hey, Inga. Hey, Ian and Sam. Hey, Doug and Amy. Hey, Kevin, they're all my neighbors. How do we move from Hey, Buckaroo to Hey, Bob? There's a brain chemistry that happens when we know somebody's name, right? You remember the show Cheers, what, where everybody knows what? Your name. I would say to us this morning that Starbucks probably does a better job of calling people's names than we do as Christians calling our neighbors' names. There's a huge difference between Hey, Buddy and Hey, Bob. By the way, if you think this message doesn't matter this morning, then, then I would say if this message isn't relevant, then we are not relevant as a church this morning. There's a huge difference between Hey, Bob and Hey, Buddy. And so this morning... I told you this is not complicated. There's a leadership principle when you're leading people that says set the bar high. I have a mentor who, who wrote a book and that was his entire premise in student ministry to raise the bar so high. That was the title of the book, Raise the Bar. Raise the bar so high that if people just come up a little bit, then you've made a win. And that was the that was the leadership uh, mantra that I marched in with in my last student ministry job. And we said, we're gonna raise it high if kids can learn chemistry and They can learn theology and how to talk about the gospel. And so we just raise the bar really, really high. Can I say what I'm doing this morning to you is, is not raising the bar. I'm actually doing the exact opposite. I'm lowering it so low that if we don't take a step in this room, and I mean all of us, then we're almost ashamed that we didn't even take a step over the bar. So this is called the block map. If you have a copy of it, would you do me a favor right now? You got one when you came out. It's on the screen right here. This is a neat little tool. Go ahead and take it out. And would you look at it? If you don't have it, I want you to grab one from Laura who's at the door when she leaves. Um, This is a, a phenomenal tool and it puts visually in your mind what's happening in your neighborhood. And your neighborhood doesn't look like this more than likely. Some of you live in apartments and condos. I live in a house. My neighborhood doesn't look like this. And it would be really impossible for me to meet the person on the very bottom of this card because they live behind me and it just the way my neighborhood set up it just does not work and so here's the here's the here's the thing I know some of you guys are like this is incredibly stupid and I'm never going to do it because I don't have time and I'm afraid and can I say to you the bar is so low this morning that if you don't jump over it um you're still in kindergarten, okay? But we're gonna help you progress to graduate school and that's okay, there's grace for it because that's where I've been for most of my life. The pastor has been there and I would say the vast majority of Christians can't name half of the majority of people who live around them. So here is what this is. There's eight blocks around you are here. These represent the eight closest neighbors that you have in your sphere of influence. It could be across the street. It could be the next apartment over. So what I would like for you to do just for a moment, I would just like for you to begin to think about your eight closest neighbors. There may be a temptation to think about the guy who lives all the way at the end of the street or all the way like four um, levels above your apartment. Like I know their name, but what I would like to ask you is to consider the eight closest neighbors you have. And then I would like to ask you to consider, can you write their name, just their first name? in that square. You don't have to write it down right now. It's just a mental exercise. At some point, I would like for you to take this card and write their name. Now, um, th- there was a lady who did some research for a guy named Malcolm Gladwell. He wrote a book called Outliers, and she found out in neighborhoods where neighbors know their name, crime is 80% less. Uh, people who know their neighbors live significantly longer than those who don't. When natural disasters or crisis happens, neighbors are typically the first one to respond. We had a crisis at my home last summer. I had to go to the emergency room at 12.30 in the morning and we tried to call my neighbor across the street. She was the first point of contact. Laura called Amy to come to our house. She didn't answer her phone because it was like midnight. And so Tyler picked up the phone and even though Tyler didn't live next to me, he was the one that responded. And, and I would say in crisis moments, those are the people who respond Can I do this for you? Um, If you did this to me in Atlanta, I would feel a little bit of shame and I would say, man, I, I know this guy and I know this guy and I know that person a few houses down, but I can't fill, I would probably be able to fill in two blocks on this map. Can I do this for you? Because I'm on this journey with you. If you look at this block above where you are here, the one across, the one directly above is the person across the street from me. That's Barry and Sonia. They're an old Arminian couple. They've lived on the street for 40 years. My kids now know them as Uncle Barry and Aunt Sonia. And they've got a little four-year-old boy who's had major medical issues and tons and tons of surgeries. And his name is Stevie. And God has given us the opportunity to interact and engage and serve that family in, in ways that have been more of a blessing to us than it have been to him. Tyler and I have been over to Barry's house and he showed us all these wood carvings. He's got a phenomenal story. The one at the top left, it just kind of looks like a tic-tac board. That's Tony and Lucy. They've lived on our street for now 13 years. They're originally from Boston. They've got a daughter that goes to college here in town. Um, Tony and Lucy and I and my family, we went to watch fireworks together at July 4th last summer. Um, Tony has given me a bottle of wine and a scooter to play with my kids. And we are still engaging in conversation and getting to know each other. The person to the right, top right, her name is Inga. She's lived on the street for eons and she's amazing. Um, Really, there's another house connected to that and he goes to this church. His name is Ian and Sam and he lives right next to Inga. If you go down to the bottom, the middle right, um, that's next door to me. His name is Jeffrey. I don't have time to tell you a story. A story, but but um, Jeffrey had a crazy accident last year where he fell in his house, broke his leg, and he laid on the floor for three days, and nobody could come get him. We heard that sound the night that it happened, and we dismissed it, and we um, we, we regret that we didn't respond to it in the moment. I was not a good neighbor in the moment. Jeffrey has had his house renovated. He's got a long ways to go. He's got an incredible story. His mom used to live in the home. It's just a really, really incredible story. Jeffrey is nothing like me. Jeffrey is not a guy that I would ever have hang out with. I was just telling Laura last night, as I'm preaching through series in our church, I think God is speaking to me. He may not be speaking to you, but he's speaking to me through these series. And I told my wife last night, Jeffrey tells me he goes to eat breakfast every single morning at a certain place. And never once have I ever said, can I go to breakfast with you? And that's going to change. And I'm going to tell you the story of hanging out with Jeffrey because God's convicted me over that. The house is below me. There are houses behind me and I could never, ever, um, I would never meet those people. And, and so, um there are a few people who live a couple houses down um and we know them and and so one of the guys' name, it it fails me. And so I can fill in one, two, three, four. The one to the left of me is Kevin. The one down bottom left is Doug and Amy. They have kids Bodie and Paxton. We were walking with them last night. And then I know other people on our street, but they're not the closest neighbors to me. So I can fill out six out of the eight in my neighborhood. And I want to say to you, it's been the greatest blessing um, getting to know the people who live around me. We've gone from Hey Pal to Hey Tony to um, Hey Tony Can I borrow this to, hey, Tony, how is your daughter and how is this situation? And it's been one of the greatest fulfillments in my life. Can you imagine just for a moment? If we as a church, and this is part of our DNA, if we as a church began to live out the greatest, second greatest commandment that God has given us. It's not a matter of, we're not counting by tens. We're not counting by ones or fives. We're counting by hundreds in this room, if not thousands in this room, when we begin to engage with people in our neighborhood. So here's what I'm asking you today. Can can we just do this as an exercise? That's okay. You can feel guilty. I've been there. How many of you guys can name all eight people that live closest to you right now? Anybody? Amazing. Amazing. Two. Um, that's a, a typical response this morning. Um, that's typical around the country. Most people, most churches respond the exact same way. How many of you guys can name four? Anybody name four people who live around you? Okay. Okay. Hey, I have a lot of grace for people who don't know their neighbors because that was me for most of my life. Can I say to you, I hope, I said, can I say to you, I'm sorry. I hope that God will lead us on a journey that will begin to be something different. So here is the action step this week. Here's the action step this week. It may be a little bit awkward, the guy that you've called Hey Buddy for a while. Really the most awkward thing for us as we were beginning to try to learn our neighbor's names was actually to step out Of our house and into our driveway and across the street and to engage people's names and for some of you who have lived in your house for years or maybe even a year you've engaged with somebody and they've told you their name and it may require you to humble yourself and eat a little bit of humble pie and to walk across the street and to have an extraordinarily and wildly awkward conversation to say I know this sounds weird we lived next to each other for a while but I cannot remember your name my name is. Is Matt. That's the action step today. That's the place where we are going. I read an article this week by a solid conservative guy that I really, really trust. And he says, This is not only good if it never leads to conversions or gospel presentations, this is good in general for our culture and our society. We hope this leads to a place where people are impacted by the gospel. But regardless, if it doesn't, and please hear me, I believe thoroughly in the scriptures. I believe thoroughly in Jesus being the only way. John chapter 14, verse 6. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, in life, but this is good for our city. This is the last thing I want to share with you, and then we're done. Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them, listen to this, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I believe we need to recover a theology of place in the church today, not just our church, the church globally. You say, Pastor, that sounds like a big word. What do you mean by that? I mean that when we look through the lens of Scripture, where we are living has a biblical, theological reason. And that biblical and theological reason is not because this was the cheapest place to live, it's not because it's the best neighborhood, it's not because it has the most bedrooms. The reason you live where you live is because God has placed you in your neighborhood for a specific reason. And when people began to reach out for God, you are the handle they reach out to. God has placed you where you are for a very specific reason. And what would it look like in our community if you said, I'm going to learn the names of my eight closest neighbors. This is probably one of the most practical messages I've ever taught. So let's do this. The, the, um, the goal of this series, if you're wondering, if you're guessing, the goal of this series is that Story City would become and begin to become the best neighbors in L.A., That sounds maybe for some of you unspiritual, but there's a deep reason when we understand theology of place, and I mean entire streets, entire neighborhoods, and cities being changed. So what's my next step? Take the block map, and I'd like for you to begin to fill it in with your neighbors, and then place that block map somewhere where you lived. I wouldn't put it on your refrigerator, because if your neighbors come to your house, you're like, why do you have my name on your refrigerator? But I would place it in your bathroom, in your bedroom, somewhere where you frequent every single day. And I would say over the course of the next few weeks, maybe even months for some of you, that this is a challenge. By the way, this is a significant part of who we are as a church. We're leaning into it this fall. We're leaning into a lot of the DNA and the values of who we are. We're going to be teaching through some of those. This just happens to be the series that goes through Own the Neighborhood. I would say the next right best step is to simply begin to fill in the block map. Have some mildly awkward moments with people who may not be like you. You may have never met before and you are taking the step for God to use you. When I was in college, I was in a ministry called FCA. It was one of the largest FCA's in the country. It was really incredible to be a part of it. My roommate was the president the last year. Um, I served on his staff, if you will, as leadership staff. And we were doing a million things. We were working in schools. We were doing Bible studies. We were just, we were doing a million things. There were about a thousand people that were showing up and we were trying to keep everybody busy who was coming. And so we created all of these projects. And at one point in the process of him being, um, leading that organization, he looked at me and he said something that has profoundly affected me and, and has shaped a lot of how I do ministry. And he says to me, Matt, we can do a lot of things okay, or we can do a few things really well. And I would like to ask us as a church will we take what Jesus has said is most important and do it really, really well? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we love you. You're a good father. God, in the midst of some awkwardness in the places where we live, God, in the location where we live, God, we don't neglect the neighbors around us in our sphere of influence, but God, when we understand that you've placed us here for a specific reason. God, we are the handlebar that people reach out to when they reach out to God. Jesus, would you remind us that you've put us in the places where we live for a reason. God, as a church, may we move in this direction, not just corporately being known in our city as a good place, but God, individually, this, I'm convinced Jesus, because you said it, is your strategy, and it's simple, and it's strategic for us changing an entire city, and God, you know, God knows we live in a city who needs to know people every day, stories of isolation, and and no community, and away from people. God, may you use us in the places where we live to be that branch. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.